0: We hope you enjoy this podcast.
1: This week on PA Books, the author of Seeking the Greatest Good, Char Miller.
0: Char Miller, author of Seeking the Greatest Good, The Conservation
1: Legacy of Gifford Pinchot. If someone watching
0: this knows nothing about Gifford Pinchot, what should they know?
1: Well, in Pennsylvania they should know, if not remember, that he was the governor of Pennsylvania during the Depression and, and in the late 1920s he served two terms. Um, but he was also the first head of the Forest Service, the U.S. Forest Service, and so developed a, kind of an administrative skill that's kind of remarkable. So he established a national agency, he ran a state, Um, and he was tremendously ambitious um, and wanted to be president and never quite got there. Why is he still remembered today? I think he's remembered for two things, one of which within this state, uh, people still talk about the Gifford Pinchot Roads that he laid out in the 1930s. um, And nationally, the conversation about the U.S. Forest Service and the national forests and how we manage large blocks of federally owned land, um, he's still central to that discussion. Why is that? notable, that the Forest Service, and
0: he started it, and why was it needed at the time he started it?
1: Well, that's a, it's it's a great question, because it, it frames the issue around what the federal government thought it should be doing with federally owned properties around the states, in the old territories and now states in the West. And the central question that Pincho asked was, what kind of land management do we want to do? What are we going to leave as a legacy to succeeding generations. And the sense that he had was that if we regulated this timber and these coal mines and the like, we would be able to use these natural resources across time, which we're still benefiting from. So I think part of what he had imagined, I mean, he really imagined the world we live in, which is pretty powerful, which is why we remember the fact that he imagined that world. He was unusual for his time in that uh, I think he was. Uh, I mean, there were people like him, John Muir, Teddy Roosevelt, um, Jane Addams, for those of who were interested in urban reform issues, with whom he was a close friend. I mean, there were some really powerful figures back in that day. But for those of us in the environmental field, Pinchot and Muir and Roosevelt are really central to the discussions we still have. When he started the uh, U.S. Forest Service, what, what was its mission? Well, it didn't really have much of a mission because it didn't have federal lands at that time. They were all over in the Department of Interior, and the Forest Service was located in agriculture. So he worked for seven years to maneuver those properties into the Department of Agriculture. He could have walked across the street, but the whole goal was to get them in ag. Um, And then they developed the National Forest, and they created National Forest schools all over the country, or forest schools, I should say, all over the country in Pennsylvania and elsewhere. Um, And so they created a whole new profession. They created a whole new social type called rangers. They created a knowledge about forestry and, and, and hydro, hydro, hydrology. Um, all sorts of new disciplines came out as a result of this decision that we would manage force in ways that we had never done it before. What was being done up to that point? Up until that point, it was cut and run go in, level it, take it out, run away. And actually Pinchot had experience with that through his own family. Uh, The Pinchots who lived in Milford, Pennsylvania, uh, the previous three generations have been very involved in the lumber industry and basically clear-cut a lot of northeastern Pennsylvania. And when Gifford turned 21, the family opened up their new house called Gray Towers, now a federally owned uh, site in Milford, and they gave him a book. It was a book by George Perkins Marsh called Man and Nature, Earth as Modified by Human Action. And in effect, the family said, we're going to transform the lands that we have cut over, let them regrow, regenerate them in some fashion. And your job, dear son, at 21 is to do that nationally, which he did. So so his parents were
0: of an environmental
1: conservationist mind, but... Grandfather was not? Grandfather was not, and great grandfather was not. They came to the United States in the 18 teens, um, came from France, and basically decided, as did many Americans, new and old, that these resources were to be used. They used them well. They made a good deal of money. Um, and then his father, because the area had basically been clear cut, left to go to New York City, made his pile in a very fortunate marriage. Um, and so Gifford grew up with a lot of wealth but also uh, parents who really felt that Returning the land to its richness was essential, and uh, that was sort of the model he embraced. Well, how did Gifford Pinchot go from having this idea or this belief to actually being
0: effective in putting it in, in <laughs> That's a great place. question,
1: because uh, the idea to action is really sort of, how does this happen? Uh, he was ambitious. Uh, he was very skilled. His grandfather on his mother's side was so convinced of this young man's administrative and sort of logistical Intuition that he wanted him to come into the family business or his family's business, which was land speculation in New York City. And Gifford's parents stood between him and the grandfather and said, No, his job is going to be very different, and basically uh, gave him the tools and also gave him the support to go off and become this forester. What was interesting is he watched other foresters, mostly in Europe. To figure out how one set up these kinds of institutions. Came back to the United States, realized that Germany was not the United States and he couldn't follow quite their model, but really was um, great at figuring out what he didn't know and then hired the people to fill those gaps in his knowledge and said, take your lead. Go do the work. Did he ever have a regular job? Well, he did have a regular job. He worked for the federal government, but if you mean a regular, regular job, no. Um, I mean, he was, from 1898 until 1910, the U.S. forester, um, and then after that point went into politics. But, but you know, he, he demonstrated some real executive skills while he was that, one of which is, again, this whole notion that when you don't know something, go hire the people who need to know it, and they'll do the work for you. How did he get to know Theodore Roosevelt? It's not clear. Uh, they moved in the same social circles in New York City, so my guess is they understood who they were in relationship to one another, but there's a wonderful story in which they first met, or what we think might have been the first meeting, when T.R. was the governor of New York State, and Gifford was on his way up to climb up into the Adirondacks in the middle of winter. He was that crazy. Um, Comes across to Albany, takes the train up to Albany, got off the train, walked up to the governor's mansion, and watched Teddy and his kids playing, Teddy is on holding sheets and his kids are climbing down these sheets to the ground floor. Pincho thought, this is my kind of playful man. So they met and they had these wonderful conversations. Roosevelt asked him to spend the night. They spent the night and then because these are two manly guys, they had to demonstrate their manliness to one another and so Pinchot proposed they box. Now keep in mind, Pinchot was over six feet tall. He had a very long arm span and uh, knocked the president or future president on his pins as he liked to say. And Roosevelt countered because he was stocking and said, well, let's wrestle, and immediately pinned Pinchot. And they became this very close bond of friendship um, that then carried on when Teddy became president.
0: You have a quote on your front cover of uh, Roosevelt saying that, let's see, let me read it. I believe it, but just to say that among uh, the many public officials who under my administration rendered literally invaluable service to the people of the United States, he on the whole stood first. Yes,
1: yeah, it's a great quote. Yeah. Uh, well, yeah. <laughs> and, and and because of Roosevelt's own administrative skills and executive capacity, and as we know, really very powerful role in conservation in the United States, that's actually a quote that's worth repeating. Uh, because he saw in Roosevelt not just a like-minded soul, but someone who also felt that um, if the law didn't quite say that you shouldn't do something that meant that you could do it and Roosevelt was very good as was Pinchot at sort of pushing the envelope to make sure that we got national forests. and over time under Roosevelt's aegis uh, national parks national refuges and the like they were really kind of a dynamic duo Was a lot of federally owned land
0: clear-cut when Pinchot took that Yeah job?
1: they did and that's one of the things that he and his men did there was federal property and the question is How big is it? We don't know. How, how rich is it? We didn't know. How, how are we going to manage it? And they didn't know that either. And so these first sort of seven to 10 years was really playful. They were really trying to figure out what was going on. So a lot of it was clear cut. A lot of it was overmined. Some of it was overgrazed, and a lot of it had burned. And so basically the federal government's first job over the first 50 years of the forest service was regenerate the land that they had received uh, in the early part of the 20th century.
0: It was a lot of Pennsylvania clear-cut at that point? Oh, my
1: God, yes. Um, and actually what's interesting is when Pinchot got into office in the 1920s, as the first term as governor, he recognized immediately that what his grandparents and other grandparents across the state had done was basically turn Penn's woods into a devastated cl- cutover landscape. And that part of his job was to reforest that ground, which became even more important in the 1930s when he before there was a Civilian Conservation Corps, basically invented that idea in Pennsylvania, and then Roosevelt, who was next door as governor, Franklin Roosevelt was next door as governor of Pennsylvania in New York State, looked over the border and said, I want to know what you're doing, and basically asked Pinchot to give him a white paper, which Pinchot drafted at his home in Milford, handed it off to Roosevelt, and that became a Civilian Conservation Corps.
0: So as you drive across Pennsylvania today and you see all the
1: hills and mountains covered with trees, they were bare? They were bare, partly because of cutover and partly because of agriculture. And as people retreated, especially from the northern arc of con- uh, counties into Philadelphia and Pittsburgh and other places, the land naturally regenerated, but it was also artificially regenerated. I mean, they were planting a lot of trees in the Gifford Pinchot State Park, for example, just south of Harrisburg was one of these agricultural areas that was then regenerated over time. Well, since Pinchot was so early in this
0: process, how did he persuade people to to invest the money in it needed to, say, replant Pennsylvania?
1: Yeah, it's a great question, and I think part of it lies in his own charisma. He was a very charismatic figure, and when he walked into a room, he really controlled the room. Um, And I think he just convinced people that this was a really good idea. I think he had the science on his side, but you also have that kind of... um, almost zealotry in a sense, a, a preacher uh, who walks in and really compels people in a way that was powerful. Um, and when he was governor of the state, like when he had been chief of the forest service, he, his central mission was really to be at the bully pulpit, convincing people as best he could to sort of follow the scientific principles, which he knew to be true.
0: I want to ask you about his wife because yes. you, you say Cornelia Bryce Pinchot was a feminist, a three-time candidate for Congress, and a globe-trotting. Goodwill Ambassador for President Harry Truman. And you also say she was a staunch suffragette and children's and workers' rights advocate, and Roosevelt was convinced she had one of the keenest political minds in the United States. Yes. Sounds like there should be a book about her.
1: There should be a book about her, and I'm, I'm toying with that possibility because she is one of these... Um, like her husband, entirely charismatic, even more dramatic than he. She had red hair, but she didn't think it was red enough, so she dyed it even a richer red. She loved to drive around the state in the family's um, convertible, a Duesenberg, and just sort of let that hair fly behind her but she was also really shrewd, and Teddy Roosevelt, when he made that claim, was talking about her when she was in her early 30s, uh, when she was working on his campaign in 1912, which is where she and Gifford met. The Bull Moose Party. The the Bull Moose Party, and though that was not successful, out of it came this relationship that I think rivals anything that we've seen, Franklin and Eleanor, Bill and Hillary, Uh, Back in the day, it was Gifford and his wife Cornelia, and they were really a stunning couple for the state of Pennsylvania. And there's a photograph in there of of, um, Cornelia walking with um, miners um, and garment workers. I mean, she put herself deliberately in picket lines, so that, as she said, the goon squads from the industries couldn't come and take out the, the strikers. So, And there's also a New York cartoon, a New Yorker cartoon, in which a guy is pulling across the drapes and looks out, and he says, thank God I'm wearing my tuxedo because Mrs. Pinchot is here. Uh, so she was a very powerful figure. How famous was she? quite famous. Um, she was maybe not as famous as she might have thought she was, uh, but she was a recognizable sort in the 20s, 30s, and 40s, um, and so much so that Harry Truman, when he came into office, used her as a goodwill ambassador for the United States in the post-World War period, and she traveled all over the world after her husband's death working for Truman, trying to be an eyes on the ground to let him know what was happening in the Middle East, in Asia, and other places. We should probably talk about the book that that uh, you just uh, released, Seeking the Greatest Good. Uh, What approach do you take with this book? Well, what's interesting to me is that it is a, it builds off of my previous biography of Gifford Pinchot. It's really about the last 50 years or so, the mid to late 20th century, looking to the present, looking at Pinchot's legacy through the eyes of a series of organizations The family house itself, Gray Towers, which was donated to the federal government in 1963 and Jack Kennedy came as president to dedicate it in September of 63, two months before his own assassination. Um, It uses the Pinchot family as one of the lenses as well because Gifford's progeny, his son and then grandchildren and now great-grandchildren are many of whom are involved in environmental issues across Pennsylvania and really across the United States. It looks at an institute called the Pinchot Institute that Jack Kennedy dedicated at the Great Towers to see how institutionally they carried forward his ideas across the last 50 to 60 years or so. Um, And then it looks at the U.S. Forest Service, which has been dramatically involved in issues of clear-cutting, not to its advantage as it turns out, and trying to reorganize itself in the latter part of the 20th century, early 21st century, so that we have a way of looking at institutionally and familiarly and politically, how the notion of environmentalism has changed since 1963. When I want to ask you about that because you, you talk about uh, Gifford Pinchot's legacy, but you also talk about Bitterroot yes. in Montana, is yes. it? Yes.
0: And then there's Monongahela yes. National Forest. West what happened in those places? West Virginia. Well, these
1: are two national forests that in the 1960s became the central zone of contest in the sort of forced land management in the United States. Why? Because the Forest Service was now practicing new techniques of clear-cutting that were really quite spectacular, honestly. I mean, they were clear-cutting tens of thousands of acres at one fell swoop. The damage, though, that came from that was partly public relations and partly in terms of the environment itself. And interestingly, Gifford Pinchot's son, Gifford Bryce Pinchot, becomes one of the sort of catalytic pr- people who called the question on the very agency that Gifford's father, had created and so there's this dramatic moment in the Bitterroot National Forest which is outside of Missoula in Montana in which he was taken on a tour and one of the things he is alleged to have said is that had my father seen what happened here he would have cried well that set off a huge controversy within the forest management world uh, within Missoula and Western Montana and also more broadly national because now suddenly the Sierra Club and other organizations had a pinch show giving voice to their own concerns about this, shift the story to the Monongahela where also clear-cutting has taken place, and it's a different set of of agents and action figures in this story. And It turns out it's turkey hunters who had gone up into these Monongahela draws and hollows and and up into the mountains and for years had been hunting turkey up there, but once the Forest Service clear-cut, the turkeys disappeared. So these two groups brought suit in the Bitterroot and the Monongahela to force the Forest Service to stop clear-cutting and out of those lawsuits emerged what's known as the National Forest Management Act which basically slowed down clear-cutting and forced most especially public access to decision-making on such policies. Is there a conservationist argument in favor of clear-cutting for any reason? There's an argument for it in terms of the capacity to get out wood very quickly and put it into the marketplace and also then to create what they called even-aged management. If you clear-cut, let's say, 10,000 acres and you go back in and plant it, every tree on that space will all grow essentially at the same age and that that might be a good thing. Well, it turns out it's not a good thing in terms of biodiversity. And so the Forest Service, after those lawsuits, and most especially in the last 20 years or so, has begun to recognize that that's not what they want to do. But in fact, take out some trees, leave others, allow them to seed the area so that you have uneven-aged forests, which is actually how forests operate.
0: What uh, What is the purpose of the national forests?
1: The purpose of the national forests have always been as... Um, regulated landscapes for use. And so the Allegheny National Forest in Pennsylvania has been a place where cutting has occurred, where mining and most especially oil and gas and now fracking are taking place. And because the Forest Service doesn't in fact own the mineral rights, that's allowed under some regulatory processes, most especially for water quality. So you've got a very interesting multi-use dimension to these national forests where recreation is supposed to take place, wildlife is supposed to occur, to exist. Um, Is Is a lot of it private property? Uh, it's in, infiltrated with private property which has always been the problem especially in the eastern part of the national forest where they were able to purchase some lands but not others and so a lot of it is a jumble in the eastern national forest which make it also very difficult to manage
0: so it's not for preservation I mean, it's not no. like a national park
1: no it's not a national park and that's one of the confusions that people have that they see the word national and they just assume a forest and a park is the same thing they're actually not the parks have been set aside for recreational wild wilderness and the like. And the forests have also got those virtues and values, but there are also places where timber cutting takes place, where dams are located, all sorts of things are occurring. So does the Forest Service make sure that the trees
0: grow properly so the lumber companies can come in and cut them?
1: That is part of the mission. Part of the mission is also now much more complicated because you have biodiversity issues, endangered species concerns, all of which have also been difficult for the Forest Service to deal with because its initial mission was cutting wood, and now it has to worry about woodpeckers, it has to worry about bears, it has to worry about salmon, all of which I think is a social good and an environmental virtue. But it's been hard as a mission to figure out how to do that effectively. You uh, refer to Gifford Pinchot as a utilitarian conservationist. What does that mean? It's an awkward term. I would chop off the utilitarian if I could, because conservation is really about the use of land and also its regulation such that it can be used by my children and my great-grandchildren over time. And that was really Pinchot's argument, the greatest good for the greatest number for the longest run. And in that process is a notion of sustainability, that this generation can sustain itself, but it also must be constrained by its uses so that it hands off these values to other, other generations who will come.
0: Now, Pinchot did not necessarily see eye to eye with John Muir.
1: Right, this. right. And I think that's where, as an environmental movement, there's some tension over the, the relationships between these two guys. But they were, first of all, good friends. They also disagreed quite a, kind of dramatically over a story about Hetch Hetchy. Um, that, has, that has ramified across time. And so we think of the national parks as John Muir's preserve and we think of the national forests as Gifford Pinchot's. The story is a lot more complicated. Those forests and parks often abut one another. So there's close relationships on the ground. Whatever we think theoretically and whatever we argue intellectually, they actually have to coexist and they do really quite easily. Can you tell the Hetch Hetchy story? Sure, I'd be glad to. So the central story about the Hetch Hetchy Valley was a valley that John Muir adored within of Yosemite National Park in the Sierra Mountains of California. But it was also a spectacular reservoir site, uh, which becomes crucial in the 1880s as San Francisco is starting to look for a more controlled and safe water resource for a city that suffered earthquakes. And when the 1906 earthquake came through and leveled the city and then burned it up, Uh, suddenly the need for water became and a safe water supply became essential. Pinchot was about to leave the Forest Service uh, to be fired by William Howard Taft, but, but part of what Pinchot was interested in was making sure that utility, in this sense, was served. And so he will argue with the Secretary of Interior that he should allow this reservoir to exist. John Muir was not so convinced um, of this, and so was also arguing with the president, who happened to be Teddy Roosevelt at that time. And so you've got these very interesting d- dynamics taking place, because Roosevelt, like Pinchot, thought that resources should be utilized. Like Roosevelt, and Muir, also believed in the beauty of wilderness. All of them were sort of out there testing their manliness in these kinds of landscapes. And so it becomes the first national debate over environmental protection or environmental use and how these two things would be negotiated. Ultimately, uh, under um, Woodrow Wilson, the, the park was invaded, one might argue, as Muir would argue, and the reservoir was created in San Francisco, got its water supply, which it still uses extensively. Um, and so one can argue that that reservoir set within a national park violated the principle of national parks. What's interesting to me is although there have been other violations over time, every time a dam has been proposed, Hetch becomes the touchstone, and it sets up the dynamic debate that has erupted around the subsequent dams. Um, and so what happened in the 1910s didn't stay in the 1910s. It still shapes how we think. Pinchot was
0: fired by William Howard Taft for insubordination?
1: He was fired by, but for insubordination. He was insubordinate. He told Taft he was going to be insubordinate before he did it, and he also told Taft, you're going to have to fire me, which Taft ultimately did. But the issue was around coal fields in Alaska. Again, a very interesting debate in which Taft um, and Richard Achilles Ballinger, his interior secretary, believed that mining coal on these Alaska lands would be good for the national economy. Pinchot said, wait a second, this is not how we've set these things up. We need to regulate this process, and ultimately would public with his dispute at which point Taft had to fire him, and he did. You talk in your book about the, the creation of the Pinchot Institute. Yes. What is that? The Pinchot Institute was a, and still is, a, a conservation-oriented organization that the Forest Service and the Conservation Foundation, which has since evolved and and joined the World Wildlife Federation, World Wildlife Fund, um, to try to come up with a think tank that in the 1960s, immediately after Rachel Carson's book, Silent Spring, another Pennsylvanian, by the way, that generated enormous controversy, how are we going to start to think about these new environmental issues when we haven't thought about what, pesticides were doing. We hadn't thought about how these new innovations were changing the environment. And since 1963, the Institute has been framed around conservation education. It's been framed around new forms of land management that are more effective, more efficient, and also more gentle to the land itself. It's been out at the cutting edge trying to think through some of these dilemmas that we're constantly running into. How big is it? It's a very tiny shop. Um, It has headquarters in Milford and also in Washington, D.C., but you do less with more, as it turns out, or more with less, as it turns out, which is a better way of putting it. Um, They've been tasked by the Forest Service and other nonprofits with solving some of the most crucial and contemporary issues, and let's take one with the Delaware River, which is flowing uh, through Pennsylvania on its way down uh, to the sea through much of the state. One of the central tensions for the cities of New York and Philadelphia is how clean is their water going to be when it arrives there? And one of the central dilemmas in the upper watershed is framed around how do we keep these lands forested when taking off that timber might in fact be advantageous for the private landowner. And what the Pinchot Institute has done is working with the Forest Service, working with Philadelphia and New York City and a bunch of other organizations, it served as the sort of clearinghouse for a dialogue that allows monies to flow from Philadelphia and New York to those landholders and encourage them to either regenerate their properties or keep them in forest. So there's an interesting payback in which you're paying for the ecosystem services, in this case water, so that it's of high quality when it flows into Philadelphia and New York City taps. It's a brilliant sort of resolution that now will be taken across the country and in other places they're all starting to look at this process. So the Delaware River and the Pinchot Institute have been really kind of pioneers in this process.
0: How does the Pinchot Institute decide what to take on, what projects to get involved in? Well, it's
1: it's really framed around forest conservation and forest conservation issues. Um, But it turns out those are everywhere. So there's also a very interesting um, project in Oregon, which I think will in fact go national, if not international, in which they're looking at two central tensions there, which is also true in Pennsylvania. A lot of the private land in the United States, forested land, is owned by people who were more than 70 years old and the questions they have are logical. What am I going to do with this property? How am I going to help pay for health care needs that I might have in the future? And the answer, one of them anyway, is let's clear off the land. The timber going into the market will pay for my health care, and then I will sell the land or maybe give it to my children, but but more likely I'm going to sell it to sort of pass something on to my, my progeny. What the Pinchot Institute has been testing in Oregon, and I think we'll come to Pennsylvania and other places in time, is what if you don't cut the land? What if you save the land for your progeny, but somehow we figure out how to pay you for the carbon credits, the extra amount of wood that's grown that allows carbon sequestration to take place in that timber itself? And what they've done is to go out to big pharma, to insurance companies, and say, look, we've got this really interesting project. Are you interested in investing it? And it turns out they are. So they've created a new ATM card that is key to medical care so that when big pharma, pharmaceutical companies, and timber companies and insurance companies buy into this project, they're actually paying the landholder not to cut so that they have property to hand off to their kids, they have medical care that when they need it, it's a really win-win-win situation. Is that
0: similar to farmland preservation? Yeah,
1: it's very similar to that in, in a variety of ways, and it's so cutting edge. It's what farmers are starting to think about, it's what people with forested lands are starting to think about, and it turns out Peter Pinchot, Gifford Pinchot's grandson, has taken that notion for the last 10 years or so and gone down to Ecuador is trying to replicate it there with those who are working on clear-cut land or want to clear-cut and saying, wait a second let's think about a new way of of operating here what is carbon sequestration it's a complicated term but it's actually fairly simple if i can convey it simply so the issue is trees grow and in that growth they are storing carbon that's a good thing in a in a in a carbon zone as we live in with a fossil fuel economy what we really want to do is to store that carbon so it does not in fact get up into the atmosphere. Trees do that brilliantly as does all plant life. So are you growing trees and can you grow more of them or within those trees do you let the older ones grow longer as opposed to cutting them? And that's a big debate within the forestry business but it turns out that if you can sequester carbon you can actually take a good deal of the tonnage out of the air and if you do that Trees are a positive good. We've always known them aesthetically to be good. We know the lumber is good, but it turns out their very growth matters ecologically and also in the sense of sequestration. Is it
0: just a drop in the bucket compared to the amount of carbon in the atmosphere?
1: Actually, it's not a drop in the bucket because there's a lot of forests. And that's true for in North America, but it's even more true in places like Russia, in Africa, in the temperate and non-temperate zones. And so part of the international ambition among those who think the trees matter is to get this growth going and if you can figure out a way to pay people not to cut you're actually going to help the planet. You are a professor of environmental analysis? I am. What does that mean? Who knows? (laughs) Um, the, the, The program I'm in, the environmental analysis program, is designed to teach undergraduates across the disciplines so sciences, social sciences, and the humanities how to think analytically about environmental issues. And so all of our students have to take courses from all of those areas. And what it means, I get to do as an historian, is to teach them about the way in which people have done this in the past, and whether it worked or didn't, um, and allow them, give them some of the tools to think historically about the present-day problems, which is what this book is also trying to do. Uh, Seeking the Greatest Good has a subtext, which is my students come to me constantly and say, look, you guys are really good at scaring us. You're really good at giving us the depressing news. Tell us what people are doing that's been successful. And so the book is really trying to show them over the last 50 years, there have been failures, and I show some of that, but here are some of the successful ventures. And I use the Delaware River Valley as one of those examples in which human beings are active agents in their own salvation, in a sense. And that's really important, and it's not just important for 18-year-olds, it's actually important for all of us, because the news is pretty grim. Climate change is happening, species are moving, trees are dying or growing in new places where they didn't have, didn't grow before. If you take the tundra, the very idea of tundra is there is not woody vegetation except now there is. And that means these landscapes have changed. Farmers in the northern part of North Dakota now have three week longer growing seasons and I'm sure that's true in Pennsylvania and elsewhere. So we know the climate is shifting. What we want to know is if in that shift there's a role for human beings to mitigate and adapt to it and the book is really trying to say there is but we have to be very conscientious about so doing how do you figure out whether
0: global climate change is is human affected or not or any of these efforts that are made to plant trees or or take other things will have any effect
1: well those are two different questions so let me start with the climate change issue and we know it because of the spike in carbon in the atmosphere in the growing spike in methane, which is even more, more concerning. Um, and the spike is massive and it is swift. And so one of the things that geologists, and I hang around with a lot of them and it's not a good idea because they're really depressing. One of the things that they've discovered through coring of soils and ice and, and other things is that you can really dramatically demonstrate how quickly this transformation has happened. You can, and you can date it back to the mid-19th century when Pennsylvania, the great industrial state, starts pulling out coal at an enormous rate and trees are dropping and all sorts of things are happening in this economy. So we know where it starts and we know what the, the trajectory looks like. What we don't know because we've been a little scared to even have this conversation, is what is it we can do to adapt and mitigate to it? We're not going to stop it. This train has left the station. Um, most geologists think maybe 10,000 years before this thing runs out in terms of, of, of the sort of ongoing processes. That's a real number, but it's a scary one. So what do we do in the process? We're, we don't live that long. So part of what we recognize is restoring forest, regenerating ecosystems a variety of ways, making landscapes more resilient. It may not be the same landscape, but you need to make it resilient enough so that it can adapt and respond to the changes that have come and are coming in soil, in the light that's generated, in the heat that that occurs, in the lack of rain or the amount of rain that falls or snow. Um, all of these are things that we're, we have to work on, and Seeking the Greatest Good is trying to give people a way to see that there are steps we can take. I don't think it's going to stop the process, but we're action-oriented as a species, so let's get, get, let's get going. How do you convince people to think in terms
0: like that if, if it's the opposite side is the profit motive? I mean, it's oh making yeah. money now
1: yeah. versus... yeah. Something that will happen over the course of the next 10,000 years. And I think that's a major question that my students ask as well. And I think my response is there is money to be made in green forestry. There is money to be made in sustainability of our institutions and our communities. There's money to be made on all of this. And part of the flip side of the challenge of climate change is, in fact, the opportunities that come with it. And I think the opportunities for those of us who are interested in sort of environmental restoration, let's say, uh, tree growth and, and making sure that the watersheds like the Delaware and the Colorado are resilient, is there's a, a lot of money to be made. And some of that money is to be made on um, innovative things that the Pinchot Institute has done in terms of landscape restoration and the models. But it's always framed around how do we, Profit from, in every sense of that word, not just cash, but also profit as a species from the changes that are coming. And I think there are steps that we can take. Like what? Well, I think, in part, let's value what we now call ecosystem services. The water that we all drink has a value. Let's put a a dollar value on that. And then when we do that, when we monetize these things, and it could be coal, it could be water, it could be air, clean air, once it's monetized, then you can sell it. And what you're selling is the value of that. So if we have a bottle of water and it costs X amounts of dollars, we're paying a lot more for that bottle of water than we pay for gasoline. That seems crazy, but we do it all of the time. So if we value that, then don't we value the fact of its cleanliness, the fact that we can actually use it? And when you do that, all of a sudden for the cities of New York and and Philadelphia and their citizens, it's worth it to them to spend the money to make sure the water, that's a profit for everybody. In Colorado, they're starting to do this as well um, along watersheds that have been burned, for example. Suddenly everybody goes, well, wait a second, that forest burned, but it had a value when it was a forest. And shouldn't the downstream user help to pay for its restoration? And it turns out the Denver Water Company and the citizens of Denver are quite willing to do that. So this is about the public element, but it's also about demand and supply and so part of what we're trying to do is to reconfigure how we think economically and when we do that suddenly it turns out it's in our best interest to pay for things that we didn't think we paid for. Is that a tough sell? Yeah it's a tough sell because usually we're very short-term in our thinking and we think let's get the dollar now and worry about the consequences later or in fact not worry about them at all because it's later. What we're trying to argue as the short-term gain has tremendous long term costs. And what you want to do is to slow down those short term gains such that we can, it's like investing in anything and saving anything. Americans aren't good about saving stuff, unfortunately, but we're going to have to change that mindset. And I think actually climate change is forcing us to rethink these propositions.
0: Now, when, when President Taft fired Gifford Pinchot from the Forest Service, did the Forest Service change direction from his
1: original vision? it would change in time but it was not immediate because they were shell shocked actually when the big chief left uh... and it took them ten years to basically re themselves but beginning in the nineteen twenties running up through the nineteen thirties and then beyond that even as they were regenerating property they were also becoming a bit more conservative and thinking out that the sort of industrial model of forestry was more to their liking um, and when that really struck home in the 50s and 60s is when clear-cutting became the central issue and so I think Gifford Bryce Pinchot, Gifford's son, was not wrong when he called out the agency in the 1960s and said my father would have been very disappointed in what you've done since then it started to turn the ship around and is much more interested in biodiversity for example and restoration and this whole notion of ecological resilience. Who gave the okay to do the clear-cutting of that bitter root in Montana and The chief of the Forest Service, and more importantly, and this is something that people forget, Congress, because Congress holds the budget strings. And when Congress says you are going to do this, you do it. So federal agencies are not free agents. They are, in fact, beholden to the legislature. And so part of what the agency was doing was responding to congressional leaders who said, in my district, I want timber coming off because that means jobs for my citizens. And the Forest Service was happy to do that and sort of changed its old hiring structures that they brought in engineers and loggers and the like at a greater degree than they had in the past. And now, interestingly, you don't have those engineers as much any longer. What you have is what they call ologists scientists, ecologists, biologists, geologists, historians, and others who were helping them regenerate a new forest service.
0: Is there a tension within the forest service of the, the clear-cut
1: people versus the preservation Not as much people? as there used to be. There used to be the tensions in the 60s, 70s, 80s, and early 90s were pretty intense, and that was one that of the recently. things I was writing about. Um, since that point, the numbers have tipped and the generations have shifted, and so some folks have retired and new po- folks have come in. Like any institution, it's a very long process of change. But I think they're much more aware now of the sort of ecological principles that drive even forestry today. Um, And, in fact, they're generating those things. And so one of the things that I've been working with uh, the agency on is that in their research division, I mean, these guys are some of the smartest scientists in the United States. They are, in fact, because they've been keeping records about the forest since the 1880s, they're the source of what we know about climate change. They have kept the data. And so two of them, in fact, won. They were part of the Nobel Prize in, in 2007. So, you know, they've got some very top-notch people now who are really helping to drive the conversation. Is there still the willingness in Washington to fund this type of work? Mm, depends on who's president. It depends on who's sitting in Congress. Uh, And so that's some of the dilemma always, is that all of these agencies, and that's true for the Park Service, the Forest Service, the Bureau of Land Management and the like, is they're dependent on Congress to give them the money to do the kind of research. And we've always had a very interesting and I'd say complicated relationship with science as science that we like the benefits that come from it. We don't always like to pay for it because it doesn't seem like it has an immediate payoff. And that's part of the larger dilemma of how we wrestle with what we know to be central dynamic issues. But when it comes time for the bill to be paid, we're not sure we really want to do it. Where does the Pinchot Institute get its money? It gets some of its money from contracts from the Forest Service and other federal agencies. It gets some of its money from private funders. The William Penn Foundation, for example, is one of the central supporters of this Delaware River project that we've talked about. Um, And and that's a tough job, raising money, especially in tight budget years. But they've been very effective, in part because they now have a 50-year relationship with the Forest Service and other organizations. And they're spreading out globally, which also drives a lot of interest because so many environmental issues we now recognize are not just United States centric. They are global in sort of range and scope and so we have to be thinking that way.
0: If, if you were to go up to uh, Grey Towers in Milford, PA in the northeast in the
1: Poconos, yes. what do you see? Uh-huh. What you see today as opposed to what you would have seen in the 1880s when Gifford Pinchot was given the great book, George Perkins, book, George Perkins Marsh's book, is a fundamentally different landscape. Back in that day it was clear cut and Grey Towers had not a tree standing anywhere near it. Today, it is this sylvan beauty. You drive up its long driveway and you understand what the Pinchot family had in mind when in 1886 they said, son, we'll repair this land. You go off and repair the nation. And it's really quite dramatic, the differences. And so, you know, from my mind, it is a perfect example of how we have changed as a culture about what we value and don't value and the aesthetic beauty that comes from this extraordinary arboreal beauty, Um, it's amazing, actually, the transformation. It took a long time for that to happen, but it required human action, and that's part of what this book is about. What's the house like? Oh, the house is stunning. Um, It was neglected, in part, by the family as they no longer could keep up this 30-room mansion. Um, It was neglected by the federal government, and part of what I do in the book is to argue that If you think about buildings as landscapes, then you also have to treat them like the land around them. You have to rehab them periodically, and it was not until the 1990s that that happened for Gray Towers. And when it reopened, after a $20 million rehabbing project, which the state, the federal government, and a lot of private philanthropy went into, you had an extraordinary house. Um, I'm not going to be a tourist promoter, but if you're up in northeastern Pennsylvania, I would definitely go look at it. It's open for tours? It's open for tours. It's absolutely beautiful. And you walk into it, and as many of the members of the family, the older members of the family will tell you, that what the Forest Service has been able to do is to bring the house back to an even better position than they remember it when they were young kids.
0: So it's not necessarily a, a good thing to donate a, a house like that to the federal government. Well,
1: as it turns out in this story, and that's one of the central tensions in a chapter, um, which I call White Elephant. I mean, the Forest Service didn't know what to do with the building. It's this beautiful space, but they were kind a of conference center. They didn't quite know what to do with it. And so they basically neglected it, thinking that in time they'd figure it out. Well, it turns out that the Pinchot family wasn't happy with them, as one can imagine. Um, They had various directors, some of whom understood what to do and some of whom didn't. But Edgar Brannon, who came in in the 1990s, had a very clear vision, as it turns out. And it's oftentimes these personalities who were charismatic and effective, and he did. He had all of those skills. And he managed to get a lot of money out of Congress to rebuild this place. Can you describe Gifford Pinchot's gravesite? Yeah, it's a fabulous site. Um, it's in a cemetery in Milford that Richard Morris Hunt helped design, the great architect who also helped design Great Towers itself. And one of the stories I tell in there, and actually the book basically opens up in this, in this story, is that 15 years after Gifford died in 1961, a, series of four, a group of foresters came to Milford to sort of honor him, pay homage to Gifford Pinchot. And they went up to the cemetery in Milford, and they didn't get it. They were looking at it. And it was kind of scraggly and overgrown. And they couldn't figure out why, in his will, Pincho said, leave it alone. I'm going to plant some trees here, and we'll let them grow. But don't touch it. Don't manicure it. Don't cut it. Don't mow it. Don't do anything. And they couldn't understand why the great forester would have let land lie. And that was part of Pincho's message, that nature does its own work if you stand aside, let it do its work. And as one of them said afterwards, I finally got it when I realized that when the trees grew in, what we saw as scraggly would die away and the forest would grow up. And in an interesting way, Pinchot was teaching an ecological lesson by his own gravesite. It's Reading that story and reading how he was training people even after his death, I had to put it in the book because it was too good of a story not to tell. How did he get into
0: running for elective office?
1: Well, Gifford Pinchot's parents raised him to be highly ambitious, and they sort of diverted him into public service in a non-elective capacity. But his family, particularly on his mother's side, had been very involved in local, state, and national politics from Connecticut and other states where they were. Um, And so he grew up knowing congressmen and senators who were part of the family, going to inaugurals because A great uncle had been there and had a ticket and was allowing him to go. So he really understood, and this is really coming from his mother's side of the family, the Eno family from Connecticut, that politics was a great game. And he really wanted to be President of the United States at some point. So how do you do that? Well, you go home to Pennsylvania and you start running for office. So he ran for senator multiple times, never got there. But he ran for office in Pennsylvania for governor twice, actually ran three times, As a Republican? As a Republican in a Republican state, but not with the Republican Party's endorsement. They hated his guts because he was too progressive, too far to the left. And so he had to build his own coalition, and a coalition was odd. First of all, there were farmers from the northern tier. There were prohibitionists, and Gifford Pinchot was a dry there were feminists because his wife was one of them and was very skillful in organizing women's clubs around the state to support her husband and there were labor unions that adored him because he was a laborite but he had a very hard time in the urban centers of Pittsburgh and, and Philadelphia that were run by bosses um, who had no interest into him. So he had to go out elsewhere for his votes. And that he managed to win at all, let alone twice, is kind of amazing. Is the fact that he was a prohibitionist kind of an odd fit with the rest of Oh, it's a totally views? odd fit. Uh, but that's what makes American politics so interesting. So he could talk to drys and get their vote and then turn around and talk to labor unions and get their vote, and they were not interested in this dry stuff. So it was an odd coalition, but, you know, you stitch together your coalitions because both groups saw in him as a man who would work for their interests, and, it's, and it turns out they were right.
0: If I were, You were on this program for your first book yes. about 10 years ago, and yes. if I remember correctly, uh, he was a prohibitionist during Prohibition, yes. but... But uh, Grey Towers was not necessarily a dry spot.
1: It's an interesting family dynamic. So the, and it's as thin as a property line that the family hewed. Grey Towers as a physical site was dry because that was Gifford's property. Cross the property and walk about 50 yards to his brother's house, which was entirely wet, illegally so. Um, and there's these amazing stories of people would go over to Amos Pinchot's home, Gifford's close brother, um get drunk and sort of meander their way over to gary towers because that was the place where everybody wanted to eat because it was a spectacular sight. even more interesting like came upon letters in which amos is writing to his sister-in-law cornelia saying do not do what you're doing which is to pay for alcohol with a check because that goes directly back to your husband you can't do that i'll buy it don't you get engaged because your brother's governor so, the, everybody in the town, I think, understood that this was going on. And often, when Cornelia ran for office, the question of the dryness of Gray Towers became a charge against her. And she, although she ran for Congress three times and never got in, one of the reasons, suspected reasons, is that everybody understood that there was something not quite consistent with her policies. Um, and her advocacy of alcoholism or her lack of uh, support for prohibition. Was, was Gifford Pinchot on to all this? Th- yes. Yeah, he oh, knew what he, was going on, um, but he couldn't stop his brother. Um, and, you know, it's awkward. You're running on a dry platform, and yet your brother is serving alcohol about 50 yards from your house entirely illegally. You you said that
0: uh, Gifford Pinchot grew up with political people all around, and and yet you say in here he had a
1: fundamental distrust of the big and powerful. Yes, and this is one of the puzzling things about his life, that he grew up in a family of enormous wealth. His grandfather, Richard Amos Eno, was basically the Donald Trump of the 19th century. He invented Broadway. He created all of that part of New York and sold it off and made a ton of money. So he grew up with a lot of cash, the family did. But the family has this really interesting public service streak to it. The French side, we would call it noblesse oblige. You give back to the community. The Eno part was also very involved in politics. And Pinchot had this growing distrust of the very families from which he came, which is the big and powerful, the monopolists in the United States were destroying the democratic ethos of this country. And so the Republican Party had a very hard time with him like it had with Roosevelt, who felt similarly that although they were privileged, that privilege came with responsibilities for those who had no such privilege. So you see both men being very appealing to labor unions, to the down and trodden, to those who were poor, and in Gifford Pinchot's gubernatorial administrations, he put in the first Jews, he put in the first women, he put in the first African Americans, and that was part of his commitment to make diversity a central emblem of his administrations, because he believed that, in fact, that's the role of government, is to elevate people.
0: Why was he a Republican?
1: <laughs> that's a great question. And he would begin to ask himself that issue in the 1930s. Um, he was a Republican because that's what, that was the family's party. Uh, by the 1930s, he realized that politically he had moved so far to the left that he was no longer at home in the Republican Party. But he couldn't go into the Democratic Party because there was Franklin Roosevelt and he wanted to be president. So he had to stay in his party uh, to try to figure out how to maneuver within it, but he never could do it. And so in the end, what he did was to stay a Republican and become a Republican for Roosevelt and vote for Roosevelt in the 36, 40, and 44 elections.
0: He never made a serious run for the Republican nomination for president?
1: He did in the 1920s. um, And there's this interesting dynamic between him and Coolidge when Coolidge was president because – Pinchot stood for the left wing of the party, the progressive end of the Republican Party. Coolidge was on the other side. And in a strike, a coal mine strike in Pennsylvania, Pinchot kept saying, Mr. President, this is a national issue. You should solve it, knowing he couldn't solve it. So he was tossing a hot potato in the president's lap. And the president, knowing what Pinchot did, said, oh, no, this is a state issue. You solve it, which is actually what Pinchot wanted him to do. And he solved the question. And so there was this whole bubble, which was, well, why not push Pinchot as the president? Because he can get things done. Well, it turns out Coolidge and, and Harding and others had other things in mind uh, for Pinchot. But in a, in effect, there was this bubble, a Pinchot bubble in the 1920s that, that popped, ultimately. You mentioned the, the concept of noblesse oblige. Yes. And you say in
0: here, and this is in the, is it in the 90s, I think, um Uh, Neil Sampson of the American Forestry Association said, uh, certainly we're all stirred by Gifford Pinchot's legacy, but we must remember that Pinchot's day is long gone, as is the time when we can emulate his methods. His was the day when elites provided leadership.
1: Yes. I think that's a bit over the top, and I understood the, the context in which this particular uh, comment was made at Grey Towers, by the way. So he was rattling the cage, even Samson was, even as he was sitting there. But it was set in the 1980s, and it was an argument from more conservative forces who argued that, that sort of top-down elitism would not work because new Reaganism meant that the bottom was important. Pinchot believed the same thing, as it turns out. And the very agency that he created, the Forest Service, uh, which has become much more Washington-centric over time, was never supposed to be that way. Pinchot actually decentralized the agency when he created it so that its power and resources would actually be in the field, not in the Washington office. Um, It's changed a bit. But I think elites still have a central role to play. Not all change comes from the bottom up. You have to have top-down support in various ways. We would not have a civil rights act of one form or another if we didn't have a president who was supportive of that, Lyndon Johnson and Kennedy before him. I mean, Martin Luther King could do a lot. So could those who supported him. They needed support from the top. And so I think to argue that only the bottom up is the only mechanism, misses the point. The dilemma for us is that we don't have a lot of Republicans like Gifford Pinchot any longer who believe in environmental issues, who believe in the power of government to govern and to manage our resources well. And that's a dilemma for us as a people. What
0: would Gifford Pinchot think of the environmental movement and the the forest service in America today?
1: I think part of what he would recognize uh, with the Pinchot Institute, with Grey Towers, is that a lot of his legacy is still alive, even though it's changed a bit, it's evolved. He was the person before he died who said, I'm, I'm about to die. I'm about to pass off at the scene and conservation as a concept must evolve over time. So the evolution I think he would be quite comfortable with because I think he predicted that it must change and would change relative to the kinds of things that have happened. But I also think he would be disappointed in that with the environmental movement, at times, there is a kind of theoretical position that puts itself in opposition to social justice issues and needs, that it's not always concerned about the poor. It's not always concerned about the dispossessed. It's much more concerned, or it appears to be, with wilderness and animals, all of which are good things. But if you don't remember that there is a social justice part to this kind of conservation, then you're missing what Pinchot thought was absolutely essential, that, that sort of green politics must come a, with a justice element, that we have to live in a society that's more habitable, more just, and more sustainable. All of those things have to, hap- have to happen simultaneously. Do you have any more books in the works? I'm actually working on a book with a photographer, Tim Palmer, Uh, about the national forests and grasslands that's about well we think it's going to be about um, sort of this new century and how these lands will be used and how beautiful they are and that very beauty and and sort of um, biodiversity the value of biodiversity is is something that we need to pay special attention to.
0: I want to go back to a question I meant to ask earlier on. So if somebody owns private land and it's all forested, they're allowed to clear-cut it? There's no limits on that?
1: There are, n- there are depends on the state, and there are state rules that apply. Um, and depending on the state, it also, some of the rules have to do with you're not able to do it if you're damaging water quality, which you will, if you're damaging wildlife habitat, which you probably will. There are a lot of regulations at the state level to which you must pay heed. Um, but, but you're fairly free to operate in a private sphere, But always know, and this is part of what I think the Pinchot Institute has done really, really well, know that what you're actually in is a landscape, a landscape scale, and your acreage abuts other people's acreage. And all of this has to operate in some kind of uh, community and conversation because that's the best way, in fact, to manage your lands and to keep them within your family over time. Well, we are out of
0: time. We've been speaking with Char Miller. He is the author of this book, Seeking the Greatest Good, The Conservation Legacy of Gifford Pinchot. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. You've been listening to a podcast of PA Books, a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. We'd like to hear from you. Our email address is pabooks at pcntv.com. Like us on Facebook to learn more about PA Books.